It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. When Rebecca Newberger Goldstein was 12 years old, she found some very hot and heavy reading material among her mom's books. I was so excited that my head was racing, my heart was racing. I had to put the book down at a certain point, you know, to just breathe. I think I was about the same age when I found my parents' copy of Portnoy's Complaint, which may have had a similar effect on me. But uh, Rebecca was more high-minded than that. For her, the big turn-on was the classic work of intellectual history, the story of philosophy, specifically that first chapter on Plato. She says she really didn't understand a lot of it, but that didn't matter. It was something about this vision of beauty, goodness, truth, lying beyond the chaos and confusion that just gripped me. Gripped her and never let go. Rebecca went on to become a philosopher herself, as well as a novelist, and Plato is still one of her biggest thrills of all. She says that even two and a half millennia after he breathed his last, the guy is still a great read, he still has a lot to teach us 21st centuryites, and the field that he helped to found, philosophy, is as necessary as ever. Even in this age of science and technology, there are still some things that philosophy does best. I've had Rebecca on the show before, talking about her philosophical novel, 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, and this time she's back with a new book that also blends fiction and philosophical explanation. It's called Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away. And to start the dialogue off, we're going to go back to that very first platonic moment that Rebecca had at the tender age of 12. I don't, you know, it just, it, it got me very, very excited. You were smitten. I smitten, yes. In exactly the way that you say in your book, the Greeks meant philosophy to affect people, not just as a bunch of dry and abstract ideas, but as a, a way of jarring you and, and even inducing a kind of ecstasy. Exactly, a kind of ecstasy, right? That word ecstasy from the Greek, you know, to stand beside. What are you standing beside? Yourself, you know, getting outside yourself. This is a kind of notion of... Um, redemptive ecstasy. That's the way to save yourself. And Plato very much has this idea. And I got a glimmer of it. And it somehow, as little as I understood, it it worked. I didn't decide then to become a philosopher. That was just too high and lofty. I mean, I was you know, a little orthodox Jewish girl. I was not going to, to be able to get myself to a good college was going to be challenge enough, given um, what I was coming from. But um, it was an experience of um, just the sheer exhilaration of thinking. Hmm. I wonder if your well, social isolation is putting it too strong, but I mean, your upbringing sort of took you out of the, the mainstream, right? It did. <laughs> did that prepare you to be an intellectual in this way? I come from, in a way, a very intellectual heritage of Talmudic study, but it was a heritage that that part, that sheer intellectual work, was closed off to me as a girl. Mm. I was not allowed to study Talmud. Mm. My father actually did in secret study Talmud with me on the Sabbath. Um, and I have a brother who's now a rabbi, and he did not particularly like to study Talmud. My father loved to study Talmud, so he studied with me, and I felt very chosen and happy to be doing that. Um, but he did once say to me that it's kind of a waste that I'm a girl. Oh, wow. 
Wow. So sort of giving you praise, but also taking it away. Wow. I wish we had time to trace your whole journey then to becoming a real philosopher, going to Princeton for your PhD and studying with great philosophers there. But we're going to jump ahead. Okay. Because you did that. And you were then steeped in, in modern philosophy. So what does a guy uh, who is now roughly 2,400 years old, who comes from a time before they had last names, uh, what does he have to say to us now? Your book is, in a sense, a defense of uh, philosophy's relevance. And to demonstrate it, you've gone all the way back to practically the beginning. Yes. So that sounds paradoxical, because not only do I want to say that philosophy is relevant, that philosophy is all around us. Yes. I hear people talking about it all the time, even if they don't realize that you're t they're talking philosophy, and talking questions that were first raised by Plato. That's part of why Plato is so relevant. But the other thing I want to claim in the book, and really argue and show, is that philosophy has made a lot of progress. I come from a scientific background. I did philosophy of science. That's what I was most interested in, philosophy of mathematics. And as a consequence, I hang around with scientists uh, a great deal. One Probably of whom is your more, husband. One of whom is my husband. <laughs> Stephen Finker. Yes, one of whom is my husband. And um, I actually hang around scientists much more than I do philosophers at this point in my life. And um, one of the things I always hear, it's almost cliche, is that science makes progress, philosophy makes no progress. And that's why, Rebecca, you could go back to Plato, because, you know, it makes no progress. Well, I actually, paradoxically, wanted to use Plato and bring him forward in, into our day to demonstrate, yes, he raised the questions. Yes, he had some of the best arguments against reducing philosophical questions to either scientific or religious answers, because comes from both sides, both science and religion, trying to exp uh, to appropriate philosophy. Um, but we have a lot to teach him. He's constantly being surprised. We And it's not just scientifically and uh, by our technology, but philosophically, um, ethically, politically, uh, he is being surprised. And he really argued for the possibility of philosophical progress. What else is the myth of the cave about? But, you know, the most famous passage in all of Western philosophy, but progress. So if he was right about everything, then he was wrong about philosophical progress, and therefore he couldn't have been right about everything. There's a, there's a syllogism for you. <laughs> By the way, let's bookmark myth of the cave. Uh, a lot of people have heard about it, but I want to hear your interpretation. But before that, you write that Plato was so sophisticated and such a broad-minded thinker that he could probably amble into just about any uh, high-level philosophy seminar today and not be completely at sea, not be completely confused, catch on really quick. Yeah. If I that's true, yeah. how much can philosophy have progressed? I mean, in the sciences, that would not be true. Aristotle could not walk into a physics yes. seminar. You know, he'd flunk. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. He would flunk, and even biology, which you know was supposedly his science, he would you know he doesn't know evolutionary biology. He doesn't genetics. know genetics. Yeah. You know he'd be lost. He had he would have a lot of catch up to do. Plato would have a lot of catch up to do. Well, what he would recognize would be the antecedents of the questions, um, and he would recognize the techniques that we use. But he would be, uh, you know, surprised by a lot of the things that we take for granted. He'd be surprised by a lot of the questions that we consider, partly because one of the roles of philosophy is to reconcile what we've learned scientifically with 
other of our beliefs uh, that we need in order to render our lives coherent. Um, so this kind of mediation between the scientific image of us in the world and what Wilfred Sellers, a 20th century philosopher, had called the manifest image of, of us in the world. So the mere fact that science has progressed so much means that philosophy has had to um, keep progressing as well. So certain ideas that uh, were once taken very seriously by philosophers, like Cartesian dualism, um, or that colors are really out there just the way we perceive them, you know, given the way science progresses, philosophy in this coherence-making endeavor, and that's how I see philosophy, is trying to maximize the coherence of our lives, including our ethical coherence, um, has had to make progress as well. So Plato would be in for many, many surprises. I like what you just said. The goal of philosophy is to maximize coherence. Plato's chosen form of writing, of recording his thoughts, was the dialogue. Yes. He got that from his mentor, Socrates. In a way. Socrates did believe in lived conversation for very profound reasons. And uh, Plato, as you probably know, expresses his own misgivings about writing at all, that philosophy really ought to take place in lived conversation, views clashing against each other. And it's a very belligerent sport, philosophy, and, it's, uh, and that also Plato would uh, be happy with. Um, but he, you know, he chose these dialogues as a way of approximating uh, what real philosophy is, the real, you know, clash, hashing, out of... hashing out and fighting and uh, why. Because one of the things we have to do in order to maximize our coherence is see what are the hidden assumptions that are so deep down in our thinking, so deep down that they're invisible to us and that the only way to bring them to the fore is in this clash, you know, in this argumentation. Right. So you have your Plato, uh, speaking of, of writing, uh, and I say your Plato, the character in your book who represents Plato. And he says, I have often reflected on the way in which writing always fails both the writer and the reader. Writings give the appearance of being intelligent, but if you question them with the intention of learning something about what they're saying, they always just continue saying the same thing. That's, you know, a direct quote from the Phaedrus. Oh, it is? Yes. Oh, sorry. Wherever I could, I try. I know, you think I'm being clever. No, that's really this 2,400-year-old man. Wherever I could, I lifted um, passages from the real Plato and put them into dialogues that are completely contemporary as a way of showing you know, this this stuff is relevant. Wow. Well, I, I very much like his comment about writing, uh, his ambivalence toward writing, and as opposed to this univocal way of writing an argument, he wrote in dialogue form, in which there's this back and forth, and sometimes it seems rather inconclusive. Yes. The uh, the two people talking discover flaws in each other's reasoning. Together, they move in some direction, but it doesn't end up being the final statement, the final word. And so reconcile that with the idea of total coherence. Is total coherence possible, and is it even desirable? Well, um... Plato certainly thought it was desirable, and a lot of our incoherence stems from sloppiness and also from egotistical <laughs> um, fantasizing, uh, the way we would like the world to be in a way that would 
do maximum justice to our own self-aggrandizement, which comes very naturally to us. Now we have a good evolutionary explanation for why it comes, you know, very naturally to us, why we have to take our lives so seriously and uh, and therefore somehow assume that the universe takes our lives just as seriously. So a lot of our incoherence, because it stems from this, you know, this egotistical place um, that makes us, that causes dissension among us, uh, would be good to root out. And I, a part of, I think, philosophical progress has been moral progress and in getting us to universalize our own commitments to our own lives, our own kin, those whom we love. If we're going to say that our lives matter so much, uh, we're going to have to slowly expand the circle of mattering till we finally, gosh, 2,400 years after Plato and after Socrates, after Socrates was executed for asking these questions, arrived at the Universal Declaration um, of rights, mm-hmm. you know, that it's taken us that long. But it's been this kind of trying to bring these hidden assumptions that make us incoherent, morally incoherent, to the fore and changing our emotions about it too. Nothing gets done through pure philosophical argument. Mm. Uh, you know, you have to bring the emotions in, it has to become a social movement. You have to open the channels for empathy, but you need an argument to show that empathy is even relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I interviewed um, Anthony Appiah some years ago. Do you know him? I do. I figured you did. I do. Uh, his book, Cosmopolitanism. Yes. About tolerance, about a more universal sense of humanity and the kinds of biases and prejudices that get in the way. And one process that he talked about, which doesn't sound like a academic philosopher at all, is that we get used to each other. Mm-hmm, uh, that mm-hmm. Whatever our principles about, you know, what is sin and what isn't, whether, you know, let's say same-sex marriage yes. is bad, but if you just get to know people, slowly, invisibly, habitually, you change your views and you become more open-minded. Yes. So you've got theory on one side and you've just got this natural process of getting used to things on the other. Yes, no, it's true. But often, you know, you need... You need the argument to even open the way to getting to know mm-hmm. <laughs> the other. I mean, mm-hmm. we needed the arguments against segregation so that we would be right. living together right. and realizing the common humanity of all of us. Um, so this is a defense of the relevance of philosophy. In fact, you title it uh, uh, Plato at the Googleplex. We'll get to that part of the title later. Why philosophy won't go away as though philosophy is this bothersome thing that won't go away. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, I, you know, I mean, am I right in thinking that part of that comes from an attempt by some people to make philosophy go away, to well, dismiss yes. it? Yes. The philosophy jurors, as you call them. Yes. You yes. know some of them, you say, some of your best friends. Some of my best friends. Want to philosophy call out their names? Ju- no, no. <laughs> I do it in the book, actually. So. Well, there, there's one person who, who got famous for it, Lawrence yes. Krauss, yes. Uh, a physicist, a cosmologist who, uh, you know, sort of belittled philosophy as irrelevant. Physics has taken over, he believes, uh, physics and science has taken over all of the territory that philosophy in the old dark ages used to pretend was its domain. Yes. And now we don't need it at all. Exactly. And then he got into a spirited uh, debate in the pages of the New York Times with uh, Dave Albert, who's a physicist slash philosopher. Right. He has a PhD in physics. Yeah. But he is in a philosophy department. And he had reviewed uh, Krauss's book, 
unfavorably. Scathingly. <laughs> and, um, and Krauss, you know, uh, was stung, and he, uh, you know, so I, I understand that. And then he but said he, something like stupid philosophers or something like well, that. Well, and he said, and he also, and, this, and for me, and for many philosophers, this was the ultimate slander. He said, philosophers and theologians, as if we were one and oh, the same right, thing. Right, right. So there is a lot. I mean, um, another dear friend of mine, Richard Dawkins, tweeted on uh, the birthday of Charles Darwin, which was about a month ago, uh, you know, happy Darwin Day. The failure of philosophers to anticipate evolutionary theory is a sign of the ultimate uh, futility of philosophy. I am aghast because none other than David Hume anticipated natural selection. And Charles Darwin's grandfather, uh, who was a philosopher, also anticipated. And the truth is, nobody really anticipated, uh, you know, until Charles Darwin. So it's an indictment of scientists, too, that they didn't anticipate. True. That's, That's what point. it's like when you, when a, a beautiful theory, an explanatorily elegant theory like evolution is um, presented. It's like, ah, duh, why didn't we think of that before? You know, but... <laughs> That's the way we are. Why didn't any scientist think of the argument against slavery until Montesquieu? That's a kind of, duh, why didn't we think that it's wrong to own other people? So, you know, it's... They weren't um, real scientists in those days. (laughs) (laughs) So progress is slow. Right, right. Actually, Plato has a wonderful quote saying, uh, never malign anybody for the slowness of of progress. Uh, That they may progress at all is wonderful. Okay. I'm still going to malign them, but (laughs) let's jump backwards to Plato's day. Greece, circa, what, 400 BCE? Yes, yes. Athens in particular. Yeah, so uh, Socrates was um, executed by the Athenians in 399 BCE, so that's a good date to remember. Okay, and uh, Plato was about how old then? He was probably 27, 28. And loved Socrates? Loved Socrates, as many as many did. So Athens in those days, paint a picture for us and also paint a picture of how a guy like Socrates, I'm going to say he was wearing a toga, though from your book, I now know that it really wasn't a toga. It a was chitin. A chitin. Yeah. Looks like what a lot of people would call a, a toga, but it's kind of dress, right? Yes. Yes. With <laughs> belted a, dress. A belted dress. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Bearded, you know, you've seen the bust of Socrates wandering around the town Not a good square. looking man. Not a good looking man. Wandering around the town square, the agora, <laughs> buttonholing anybody who would talk to him and engaging them in some kind of philosophical debate, inquisition, whatever, right? Yes. What kind of town was this? Well, um, I actually think that uh, ancient Greece and contemporary America have so much in common that we've never been in a better position to understand what was going on uh, in ancient Greece. Um, they were as we are, very obsessed with the question of how to live a life that matters. In fact, this went wider than just the Greek world. A great deal of the globe was involved with this sort of question. And what's the evidence for this? The surviving religions, all of them, that command the devotion of millions still, um, emerged during that period, the Abrahamic religion, Confucianism, Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism, and secularism, philosophy, the secular approach to this question of what is it to achieve a life that matters. The Greeks had their own way of going about this. It's interesting that although it was a 
society that was uh, saturated with religious rituals, they didn't look to their gods uh, for this existential, the, the ultimate es- existential question. What do we do to make our short time here on earth uh, matter? And they turned to celebrity. Uh, really, it was as the first celebrity culture. Uh, they didn't look to their gods. They didn't want the attention of their gods. That's the last thing they wanted. Every time the gods paid attention, something terrible would happen to you. The very least, a rape. And it's, so most of their rituals were um, to ward off, to prevent divine attention. They wanted the attention of their fellow mortals. That would make their life have a moreness, a substance. If it was, if the story of them was repeated, um, you know, and it was mentally represented as much as possible. They had a lot of Twitter followers and a lot of Facebook you have likes. A, you have a phrase for this. The Greek phrase is kleos, which um, means many things depending on context, but it can mean the glorious deed that gets attention, or the poem that roots it abroad, what you did. Your ticket um, to fame. And then the fame <laughs> that results. Uh, and Cleos was at the center of their their value system. And, and your phrase, by the way, is ethos of the extraordinary. Oh, the ethos of the extraordinary, yes. So how did you get Cleos? Uh, how did you get this confirmation and validation of your existence? Um, you had to be extraordinary, some way or another. Um, athletics, war, statesmanship, rhetoric, uh, money, beauty. Uh, and this goes way back to before the philosophical age. So in the Iliad, it's where I found most of the evidence you know, for the beginnings of this uh, ethos of the extraordinary. The only two characters in um, the Iliad who are called godlike are Achilles and uh, Helen, because of their extraordinary beauty. And Achilles, most importantly, um, he's terribly important into the age of Plato. He's always acknowledged as the most heroic of all the heroes. And it's not just that he was beautiful and fast and wonderful warrior um, and half god, you know, yeah. but he was given the choice uh, by his goddess mother, Thetis, to live a long, but ordinary life or short and extraordinary life. And he chose the short uh-huh. and extraordinary life. The, so there it is, like in neon lights, the ethos of the extraordinary. So live how fast, he... die young, leave a beautiful corpse. Exactly, exactly right. So this really does sound like modern secular society. Um, what do we make of the so-called religion of the Greeks? Was it a religion, what we now call Greek mythology? The gods weren't anything like the god of the Abrahamic religion. No. They were no. like humans writ large. I I compare them to older siblings. You know, they're always a step ahead of you. They're more beautiful and more accomplished. Close enough to us that we would try to emulate them. But if you get too close, they'll turn on you and put you in your place. Well, they're almost like tabloid fodder, too. Mm -hmm. They're having family quarrels. They're having romances. They're getting in trouble. Yes. They have flawed personalities, even if they are powerful and beautiful. Exactly. You know? Exactly. But that's not religion as we now recognize it. No, 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 no. Over... (laughs) Across the Mediterranean, on the other side, was this still obscure tribe the, who called themselves the Ephraim because they lived over Haryardain on the other side of the Jordan. And um, they were working out a different conception of how to matter in their very special relationship with one of their tribal gods who eventually got um, 
promoted to only God um, and uh, the grounder of you know morality and the creator of everything we see the, the the world without and the moral world within and there was and and to have his attention which we do have whether we're being good or bad um is to have complete confirmation that our lives matter i mean i was brought up as i mentioned as this very orthodox little jewish girl i thought you know if i took a bite of one of my friend's hostess Twinkies, uh, which did not have the proper rabbinical supervision, God Almighty, the God of the hosts, would take note of my nibbling on a hostess Twinkie. And so this is terrifying, but you you never doubt for a moment that you matter. Mm. But this God works in mysterious ways. You're not even supposed to name him, much less get to know him in a kind of up close and personal way. Yes. He issues strange orders. We call it the Ab- Abrahamic religions. Well, Abraham himself got a very strange order from this God to kill his kill son. Kill his son, yes. For no for, apparent reason. Yeah, yeah, just because he said so. <laughs> so this seems like the antithesis of the Greeks who were so modern in starting to question everything. Yes. Starting to study everything, starting to imagine that nature itself could be decoded exactly and reduced to yes. principles and laws and theories you know yes wow yeah. those guys i mean where did that come from you have any idea you know that notion of um that what uh one historian of science gerald holton called the ionian um, enchantment. enchantment. I call it the Ionian intuition because I think it's true. It's been vindicated by how well it's worked. It was a great, but that um, notion that the world is thoroughly intelligible, that it works, there is a logic to be grasped there, at least physical, uh, physical reality, and that uh, it's working in patterns. Those, it's not, it's the patterns, it's the repetition. There's some order there. And we have to find a way of making it um, intelligible to ourselves. And they all were sort of looking for that. Plato, I have to say, once again, hit on the most important idea, which is that it's mathematics. That In the Timaeus, he tells us it's, it's mathematics. I mean, he's got this theory of forms. I think he gave it up. I know we all, you know, associate the doctrine of Plato, first and foremost, as being um, the theory of forms. He subjected it to rigorous criticism, as rigorous as Aristotle in his dialogue, the Parmenides. And depending how you date the dialogues, and of course, there's scholarly, you know. Skip that stuff. Yeah, (laughs) forget that, right? Um, But it really does seem that the later dialogue, dialogues, in particular the Timaeus, which is a which is a late dialogue, just that drops out of the picture. The theory forms it's math. That is what renders physical reality intelligible. And so when science reasserted itself, when the Greek idea of using reason to understand reality rather than religion, uh, the Abrahamic religion, and particularly Christianity, uh, that had um, taken hold of European thought. When when this idea in the Enlightenment and the pre-Enlightenment reasserted itself um, in figures like Copernicus and exactly. Kepler. Exactly. It took and a thousand years. It took a thousand years. Kepler and Galileo, and this was one of my reasons for being so interested in, in Plato, Kepler and Galileo, whenever they referred to 
Plato, which they do quite often, they call him the divine Plato. And it's because mm-hmm. of the Timaeus mm. and that notion that beautiful mathematics mm. will lead us to the truth, mm. which is a fundamental assumption of still of physics. Absolutely. Uh, and as you point out in your book, people still, very modern scientists, call themselves Platonists, some of them. Yes. Mathematicians, Mathematicians especially. especially. Uh, the idea that math is not some abstraction that we yank from reality, but it is the bedrock of reality, or it has its own reality. That it is. You know, there's some math out there. It's yes. not in us. Yes. It's not something that we made up. In fact, the perfect correspondence between math and physical behavior and the way we discover it means that it is out there. What do you think? Are you a Platonist? Oh, you know, it's one of those philosophical issues that I have been obsessed with for my entire professional life. And I changed my mind about it a lot. I think it's one of the uh, most baffling questions of, uh, of philosophy. What are we doing when we do mathematics? We need mathematics. We use it in science. Uh, we love mathematics. What are we doing when we are? Are we discovering or are we inventing? Or is it even coming out of the structure of the human mind? It's Kant thought, you know, that it's sort of built into the structure of the human mind, and there's nothing objective about it. So what are we doing uh, when we're doing mathematics? I lean towards Platonism, not not um, not a silly kind of Platonism. There's a kind of silly kind of Platonism that that's very easy to mock. Uh, but Which I, is that there's a land out there where... Yes, yeah, sort of, you know, to think of it in a kind of numbers and forms space exist. place, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? <laughs> it's not this space, it's another space, right? I mean, that's entirely the wrong way to think about it, and it's easy to mock. Well, uh, Rebecca, yeah. are, are ideas real? Are our sentences, the ones we're speaking right now, real? Yes, they're real, and they have um, objective truth values, right? Some are true and some are false, and uh, it's our... Um, it's our joy and our responsibility to discover <laughs> which of those truth values applies to them. So yes, I think um, I think that uh, coherence is real. Um, you know, I think that this project of the philosopher to maximize coherence and to help us live better lives um, for ourselves and for each other, most importantly, um, is real. Is we are discovering something, not just making it up. You've probably asked physicists this. A lot of them don't call themselves Platonists, but they absolutely believe that math is at the core of physical reality. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, interesting. It's, in fact, it's the most God. perfect embodiment of the physical, you know, and especially when you get down into the quantum realm where we will never see or hold or touch anything. It is math that says it completely. Yeah. And yeah. when you talk about, uh, let's say, quantum theory, what we call particles are actually wave-like distributions of probability, a purely mathematical concept. Yeah. You know, we use imagery and models to to, to try to get in, and they're often quite useful. They're often also mislead us because there are some ways that these models correspond to the math and other ways that they don't. So we're often misled by our models. But, you know, math as certainly as maybe the core of reality, but certainly as a guide to reality um, is... One of my favorite stories about Einstein is that um, when Hans Reichenbach, who was a philosopher of science, also a physicist, asked Einstein, how do you feel now that there's finally some empirical confirmation of general relativity theory? And it took um, a 
a complete solar eclipse to get some empirical uh, confirmation to see that mass bends light waves. And so Hans Reichenbach says, oh, you know, how do you feel now? And Einstein said, oh, it doesn't matter to me at all. I knew that this theory must be true because the mathematics is so beautiful. Ah, I have a uh, contemporary physicist saying something similar. I want you to listen to this. In particle physics, you have to have a threshold amount of intelligence, whatever that means. But the thing that differentiates scientists is purely an artistic ability to discern what is a good idea, what is a beautiful idea, what is worth spending time on, and most importantly, what is a problem that is sufficiently interesting, yet sufficiently difficult, that it hasn't yet been solved, but the time for solving it has come now. So that is not only a particle physicist, but so conveniently a Greek particle physicist, ah. Savas uh, Demopoulos. By the way, I got that clip from a, a new movie that's just come out about the search for the Higgs boson. Savas is one of those guys. Oh, I know about this. I haven't had a chance it's to see it. It's called Particle Fever. Yeah. But uh, when I was reading your book, I thought, ah, I've got to play this, this quote, because it shows how just contemporary this thought still is among physicists that beauty is a guiding principle. Yes. That if it's beautiful, you, you might well be onto something. Exactly. So given two theories that are both adequate to all the empirical evidence, for example, like the Ptolemaic and the Copernican theories were both adequate to all of the empirical evidence. They, you know, they both made their predictions. But one was mathematically ugly with all those epicycles. It wasn't coherent, you know, it was so ad hoc. The other was elegant, mathematically mm -hmm. elegant. Mm -hmm. um, you Simpler. just change your, uh, you know, your origin in your, in your coordinate system and the math, it becomes beautiful. And, and that's basically the way they went. And it, you know what's interesting? Galileo, who was such a Platonist, really, <laughs> said that... Um, it's only because of his stupid critics that he has to perform all these experiments. Um, you know, if they were good mathematicians, they would be convinced. Uh, so thank goodness for the growth of the scientific method, which is this um, conjoining of, you know, mathematical theory and experimentation, mm -hmm. so very important, the experimentation. Um, thank goodness uh, for the development of this methodology that Galileo's critics were so stupid. <laughs> as he says. Well, that leads me to ask how we came to this contemporary point where a lot of people now believe that a truly scientific viewpoint is to privilege one kind of perception only, that reality is physical, meaning that it is perceptible through our, you know, five senses, not mental, which is another form of perception, mm -hmm. right? That ideas, math, things that are not tangible, that are not material, somehow lack reality, and that the only reality is physical reality. But there's a strange contradiction there, because the only way to describe that physical reality is through ideas and through mathematics and yeah, things like that. Exactly. But yeah. I, I sense this contradiction everywhere these days. Yeah. The materialist yeah. position just seems really bizarre to me. Well, this is where you need philosophy to make <laughs> coherence, right? To see just exactly what you have said. As you say, you know, what does physical reality really mean? Again, he did have some of the most fundamental um, insights, and one is that 
the senses lie. And that, you know, to just take the senses at face value gives you an incoherent picture. So in trying to make it coherent and intelligible, we have to go deeper than Mm. the senses. And as it turns out, it's these mental constructs, uh, we've been talking a lot about mathematics, that, um, that help us to define what physical reality really is. Uh, So, you know, light colors, are are colors really like some the the things that we see? Or is it like waves of various frequencies, you know, being uh, bounced onto our sensory apparatus and the interaction gives us color as we see it? What is physical reality itself requires a lot of philosophical analysis. Science uses assumptions that require philosophical validation. Philosophers have, have, have made it easy for the scientists to claim that what they discover is everything uh, because they're depending on philosophers to say that what they discover actually is anything, <laughs> right, is reality. That requires going out of science. Have you managed to persuade otherwise doubtful scientists of this position? Maybe some, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some. <laughs> Let's get back to, to Socrates for a moment. Um, we described Athens, you know, circa 400 BCE as modern in some ways, modern in thought, secular, a heavy emphasis on rational inquiry, on discovery. They didn't have the apparatus necessary to explore nature that we have now. Yeah. But they had all the mental tools. They were well, inventing they great math. They yeah. had their thinkers. They started to get mathematics. Yeah. How big was the city-state of Athens? What was the it population? It was 300,000, but only, we think, I mean, all of this mm-hmm. is 300,000, but only 100,000 of those were citizens, meaning um, were male and were mm. not slaves. This is a way in which they weren't terribly modern, yes. They had an idea of democracy. They had some very progressive ideas about, you know, shared rights but only for the citizenry. They didn't. I'll tell you something. I actually would argue that they didn't have a notion of individual rights. You know, and that's why they could have slaves, and that's why, and other Greeks could be slaves, and uh, that's why women were, were were treated as they were, did not for the most part participate in this glorious culture. Uh, what they had was the notion of you know this being extraordinary and. And the city helping to make you extraordinary, so a kind of participatory exceptionalism. And the Athenians had this to a great extent. Look, even most Athenians were, you know, average people. By definition, most of us are average, right? Um, Even if you're living in an extraordinary culture, most of you are average. Uh, Most of us are average. And... um, but the mere fact that they lived in this extraordinary culture and were participating in it through democracy or through helping to build uh, the Parthenon, you know, this this statement of Athenian glory, uh, spread the extraordinary around. There's a very strong sense of Athenian exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are an extraordinary person. It's it's right there in Pericles' speeches uh, that are recorded in he's, Thucydides. He's the, the mayor. <laughs> he's the mayor. I mean, he's the first citizen, right? right he did a right. democracy, yes. but he's the first citizen, and he talked them into the Peloponnesian War. I mean, there was a lot of hubris, uh, collective hubris, um, that got them into a lot of trouble. Oh, and by the way, I want to add one other thing that was really, I feel, very modern, was that they had their media, their social commentators, 
their playwrights, their, yes. their comic writers who yes. were making fun of these things, yes. who were criticizing, satirizing. Yes. You read Euripides or something. It's amazing. Well, Euripides in particular. Yeah. He was a very <laughs> severe social critic and Plato yeah. liked Euripides. Yeah. But one of the interesting things to realize is, well, we all remember that Socrates was executed, extraordinary as he was. Uh, that's what I was going to ask yes. you. So everybody knows a little of this story, but tell us why he was executed. Yes. He was brought up um, on charges of impiety and corrupting the young, and these were capital charges. He was, prob- he was probably given the means to escape. The Athenians did not really want to execute him. Um, you know, <laughs> would not look good. So they really made it easy for him to escape. And, there, and uh, Plato actually has one dialogue, the Crito, in which... Uh, uh, Crito, who's a rich man and has arranged for the escape um, with the sort of nod of the authorities, comes to Socrates in his cell, and Socrates turns him down, and he says, you know, that I have lived as a citizen under these laws, and um, I, I've gotten advantages as a citizen from these laws. I have, to, I have to respect the laws, and even if what they're doing is unjust— um, I have to respect these laws. I mean, we can argue about this. Um, I first read the Crito when um, I was an undergraduate, and we I was very involved in the anti-war movement. And, you know, the, I read I read the Crito and thought, oh, oh, this is horrible, right? This is just <laughs> terrible. But, you know, as I've gotten older, I, I more and more try to see things in context. But in any case, we have to look at the historical um, um context of 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 Socrates execution they tolerated him and I think they even enjoyed him as an Athenian character um Aristophanes the great uh comic writer writes about him in the clouds yeah Yeah. and and Socrates is actually quoted many years after his death as saying he enjoyed it when he went to the theater and everybody sort of, he's, he's, a, he's a figure up there and everybody's laughing. He said it made him feel like he was in a great big party. And every, so, um, so why did it suddenly become so dangerous? Well, it became so dangerous because Athenian exceptionalism had taken a tremendous hit. Uh, that Peloponnesian War that had gone on for almost 30 years. With Sparta. With Sparta, um, an inferior Greek state, did not have the great culture Bunch of the of Athenians. Yeah, uh, yes, yes, military <laughs> jocks, really. Uh, they had been vanquished by this inferior uh, state. And, you know, it had been occupied for a while. There had been Spartan troops up there at, on the Acropolis. And then those who collaborated with Sparta, the 30 tyrants had, had, had taken over and there had been a bloodbath and it had been just terrible. And then finally, Spartans leave, the democracy is reinstated. Athenian exceptionalism had taken a big hit. In fact, one of the things that I read, which was so interesting to me, is they declared an amnesty for all everybody who had collaborated with the Spartans during the time of the 30 tyrants. And there was not going to be retribution. There were no questions going to be asked. We're going to work together again. And the rhetoricians all go around bragging, oh, other people can win wars, but nobody can do defeat the way we do defeat. We are the best at 
in the world. I mean, they are, you know, patching together this thing that made them feel like they mattered. But was there a sort of a McCarthy era then of recrimination? Uh, and- you know, yes, it was during the tyrants. Uh, you know, there were those who and, had and is always. That why Socrates, a guy who basically did nothing more than ask questions, right? Yes. Is that why he was perceived as such a threat? The reason I think he was perceived as such a threat is Socrates had been saying all along, you're not great because you're Athenians. You haven't Ah. even begun to think about the question of what makes life worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. Like This is the most famous quotation of Western philosophy. That sounds deeply unpatriotic to me. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> you, 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 you know, so here they are. They've taken this hit. It was fine to have this, this guy, you know, going around saying this. The fact that they tolerated him just showed how great they were. And, you know, here's this character. And, but when they are struggling to put together again to reassemble their sense of exceptionalism that they are the greatest in the world to have this man going around saying you know don't be crowning yourself with laurels so quickly you haven't even begun uh, the quest no more they didn't want it they didn't need this anymore so plato who loved socrates is around for socrates's trial and execution yeah and when I say execution, I mean they let Socrates kill himself. But the hemlock, right. Yes. He took the hemlock. So he tells us quite um, blatantly, uh, overtly, that he was there at the trial because, because Socrates would make no compromises at that trial, at least as it's presented by Plato in the Apology, one of his early and fantastic dialogues. Um, and so when they say, after he's voted guilty, they say, Again, they give him a chance. Well, you can you can negotiate if you offer to pay something. You we will you know make an offer. And we'll we'll compromise here. And he says, well, you know, if I'm going to get my just desserts, I have done you so much good. I think I should get free meals for the rest of my <laughs> life. And then more people vote for him to die than had voted for him to, for, his, for his guilt. You know, he so annoyed them. Um, no compromises to, to their vanity, to their, to their conventions. He's really sticking it to them. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, and, and so Plato says, so, uh, you know, there's a great outcry from the audience. And um, apparently, you know, Socrates says, oh, I see Plato is willing to put up some money for me, you know. So he lets us know he was there. He also lets us know in the Phaedo, which is his account of Socrates' death, which is completely fictional. Um, he has Socrates putting forth views that we know Socrates didn't have. Mm. These were Plato's views, mm. so it's completely fictional. But he he has us know, um, because one character says that uh, Plato was ill and couldn't be there. So he wasn't there for the death, but he was there for the trial. He goes on to then spend a career writing these dialogues in which Socrates is the main recurring character, right? Yes. So he is a disciple of Socrates. He is... In a way. Yeah, in a way. In a way. (laughs) Socrates is a hero in his his dialogues. Yes. Um, But he never got in trouble for that. No, things had changed. Okay. Things had really changed. One of the things that really changes is that Plato, I would say to the detriment of philosophy, creates... The Academy. Uh, Now, it was a great thing. It's the prototype of the university. Um, But he separated philosophy from the marketplace, from the agora. 
Socrates was there with the people, trying to figure it out with them. Right. Because we all care about philosophy. Yeah. That is what it is to be human. Ah. We all care about this. Well, Plato's often accused of being an elitist. And there are grounds there for that for that claim for that for the accusation. But he did feel, you know, and perhaps it had a lot to do with what the fate of Socrates, that it, it, it can't be done. It has to be done by experts. Mm-hmm. Um it has to be so he creates the academy. He he left Athens for about ten years after uh, the execution, and he traveled widely. That's probably when he came into contact with the Pythagoreans, who are also those who think that mathematics, you know, is the core to reality. The mystical and, core. Yeah. Um, yes, and so, and a kind of a redemptive uh, salvation, you know, mm-hmm. this the, to, to grasp the mathematics. And this becomes extremely important, as we've spoken about, um, in, in Plato's thinking, and it's it's not Socratic. This, I mean, it doesn't come from the figure of Socrates. And so, But he brings, touchingly, he brings Socrates, the voice of Socrates, I would say the beloved voice of Socrates, forward with him to help him in his exposition and his examination of these questions that probably the historical Socrates never considered. Plato is a philosopher of genius. Uh, He goes far beyond Socrates, but he brings him along Mm. um, in this. I like to think that that's... um, part of the emotional motivation of the dialogue and and bringing Socrates, uh, making him a major figure always. Socrates is not, uh, the figure of Socrates is not a sock puppet for Plato. Sometimes, as you say, Socrates doesn't have the answers. Sometimes it's others, and especially in the later dialogues, who teach Socrates. And sometimes in the very later ones, uh, the statesman and um, the sophist, um, it's others who who carry the conversation forward, and Socrates is almost silent. So he, but he's there, and that's interesting that hmm. he's there. Well, you have done a similar number in your book. Instead of bringing Socrates along, you've brought Plato along. Yes, your book consists of alternating chapters of explanation and exposition, and actual dialogues and modern dialogues in which Plato is a character. So we have Plato at the Googleplex, the Google headquarters in Mountain View, on his book tour, talking to a Google employee and a book tour escort. Yes. We have Plato on a show that is very much like Bill O'Reilly's show. Oh, did you think so? (laughs) Speaking to a Bill O'Reilly stand-in named Roy McCoy. Yes. Yes. And we have Plato um, advising uh, an advice columnist who's uh, sort of like Dear Prudence in Slate. She's taking inquiries about love and sex, and Plato is advising her on her responses. Yes. We have um, Plato uh, talking at a kind of colloquium with an Amy Chua type, Mm -hmm. a tiger mom type, Mm -hmm. and another person who's like a developmental psychologist type or something. Psychoanalyst. Psychoanalyst. I thought of her as a kind of Melanie Klein. Okay, I was wondering who she was based on. And then finally, um, Plato uh, talking to a neuroscientist, which I couldn't wait to read. (laughs) You put it at the end. Yes. And the neuroscientist grad student. Yes. And all of the questions that are discussed in these, you know, sort of contemporary dialogues, um, the questions relate to things that took place in the previous chapter, the expository yes, chapter. Yes. So, you know, yeah. I, I meant the book to be read in order. You know, uh, I did read it a, in yeah, order. I did. Thank, yes, I did. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what did you 
learn from personifying Plato in this way, making him into a character, giving him a voice, having him interact with other characters. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I could accomplish this way is to dramatize my belief that these questions are still with us. Uh, we're, we're talking about them all the time. And as often as I can, I lift at things that the man, 2,000-year-old uh, man actually says. It sounds like that Mel Brooks, uh, I was gonna say, Carl Reiner yeah, joke. Yeah, yes. we should get Mel Brooks to play him. That'd oh, be great. Oh, what fun would that be? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that, that I hoped very seamlessly would just um, fit into these dialogues. So what, what a way to try to show that, yeah, we're still talking about this. And now I have to say, when I read Plato, there are passages and there are dialogues that I love. There's a lot that makes me extremely impatient. I mean, as I say, we've made so much progress. Uh, so a lot of it just seems muddled and uh, to me. And, and a lot of it I just morally disapprove of, you know. And Plato would approve of our disapproval because if he was right, we have come farther than him. You know, we can't take him as, you know, gospel. Uh, we shouldn't take anything as gospel, and including including Plato. Maybe Spinoza, no. <laughs> <laughs> He's your favorite. He is my favorite. Yes. But one of the things I wanted to do um, is I wanted to turn Plato into a character that, that I could like, to like more. And what the way I did that, I did try to be as faithful to his views and to, you know, as I could be and to weave in what he had said. But um, I realized that I gave him what I take to be the best of the spirit of philosophy, which is to be you know, very serious. These are serious questions. We do not want to squander our lives. None of us do. But playful. Thinking is playful. It's joyful. To be open to other points of view, and that's what the dialogue is all about, to be ready to learn, to be insatiably curious, to want to know all the science that there is. You can't be a good philosopher without knowing all the science that there is. It's very hard to be a good philosopher for so many reasons, but one of them is you've really got to understand the science. If you're going to mediate between the scientific image and what else we need for to live coherent lives, you've got to know what the science is saying. Um, my Plato is, he knows sadness. His life has been touched by sadness, but yet there's a hopefulness to him. He believes in our being able to do better, and he wants to share it with everybody. Yeah, there's one more thing to your Plato, the one you depict in your book, and that is he's compassionate. He is compassionate. He's caring. Yes, he is. And he argues in a, you know, he's very serious, but he argues in a compassionate way. And, you know, it seems to me that if philosophy has taught us anything, if we're going to take this question of human life seriously, we have to take each individual life seriously. I think when I was young and... I also, I think, you know, it may have been Will Durant's story of philosophy as well. Really? Will, Will and... Ariel. Right, Durant. Yes. That was my introduction. It might have been. And I imagined meeting a real philosopher, you know, and what I wanted was someone who was wise, incredibly smart, but also paternal and or maternal. Yes. Uh, and, and caring, you know, and that's what your Plato is. In real life, how many philosophers are that way in your, in your experience? Well, not enough. 
<laughs> sorry to say, you know that um, so much becomes a personal way of showing how much you matter. And these are people whose intelligence, ma- you know, they that's argument what is everything. So to trounce the other yes. person to, yes. you know, yeah, and. Good work can get done that way. It can motivate very good work to come out. But the spirit of philosophy is is different, it seems to me. Um, if it started with Socrates questioning this whole way of trying to feel that you matter um, by status and, you know, how much greater you are than other people, um, if it started with Socrates challenging that, it seems to me somewhat sad and also funny uh, that, you know, that academic philosophy is often just about status. I think that's probably all I should say before I get myself into more trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, with all your learning that encompasses uh, the 2,400 years that have come after Plato's life, what parts of his work, do you still reach for? Do you still think about? Uh, yes. or, or do you consult, you know? It's interesting because, you know, in some way, Spinoza is my go-to guy. I, yeah. really, I yeah. really, he is the, the person I um, I consult very often. And I, I find, you know, in, adver- in adversity, he is the person uh, who gives me the, the bigger perspective uh, that pulls me out of myself, that makes me feel grateful for existence, even when existence is not going exactly the way I would want it to. And occasionally ecstatic? Oh, very often ecstatic, yes. Tell, for our listeners who haven't read Spinoza, um, you know, who may not know anything about him other than his name, Yes. what is it about him that is so powerful for you? Well, you know, in some sense, he takes a lot that is there in Plato, and he sort of makes it more. It brings it to the next level, to the next logical development. Uh, but the notion that uh, reality is is intelligible and we change ourselves by assimilating that big picture as much as we can, that our own emotional self changes in the doing of that. And it's a joyful process. As our coherence grows, uh, we see perspective and um, and it makes us more compassionate towards others he really brings in that in that compassionate aspect well i can't let this interview end with spinoza upstaging plato yeah i'm worried about that too so i have to ask you one more plato question if you could meet plato yes what would you want to ask him or say to him i would want to say to him you know good going you, you really started something great <laughs> Uh, you're an amazing guy. What a nose for philosophy you had. You found those philosophical <laughs> questions everywhere. Are you surprised by how well so many of us are able to do it? Um, are you surprised by, um, by the fact that democracy has worked as well as it has? Do you think you didn't give us enough credit? And I'm hoping he's, he, he would mollify his elitism to a certain extent uh, and say, uh, well done, humans. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Rebecca Newberger Goldstein. Her new book is Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away. Oh, and one other thing, uh, back near the beginning of the interview, I promised that we would return to Plato's myth of the cave, his famous allegory. And I do like to keep my promises. So uh, in ending the broadcast version of the show, I closed 
with this. Nearly 2,400 years ago today, a philosopher named Plato wrote an allegory of what it meant to be a human being and how we view this world. It's a beautiful work, and I have the immense honor of giving it to you in musical form. Can we imagine that we're bound at the neck and legs? In a matter that we can't seem to move our heads Sitting shackled and ensnared on a cave floor And behind us lies some form of light source But we're stuck staring blankly at the cave wall Angle perfectly to see where that light falls And as the figures pass, these shadows are cast And our minds have to try and decipher what our eyes saw This is our only known reality The world's small with the prisoner's mentality we struggle to make sense of the specters So naive we let our ignorance protect us But everything we've seen is a lie At least a skewed version of the truth And if we just open up our eyes Then maybe we can search for the truth I've seen something new The greens and the blues I've opened my eyes And I've seen the truth And I've learned of life And I've learned to feel And closing your eyes doesn't make it less real Seen something new The greens and the blues I've opened my eyes And I've seen the truth And I've learned of life And I've learned to feel And closing your eyes doesn't make it less real Now let's imagine that we're set free but all the other prisoners are let be And when we finally turn our heads and we see the light It's overwhelming and we can't seem to use our eyes But over time our sight adjusts and we focus See this cave as we never would have noticed And the world that we've known since our early youth Are simply just the shadows of a bigger truth Now suppose that we're carried all the way out Far from the prison in the darkness of the cave's mouth We take it in and we wonder what it all means Don't have the words for the world that's gone unseen Come to know that this place is the only truth And everything before was a foolish lie And that the sun is the only proof For the prisoners we left behind I've seen something new Greens and the blues I've opened my eyes And I've seen the truth I've learned of life I've learned to feel Closing your eyes doesn't make it less real I've seen something new The greens and the blues I've opened my eyes And I've seen the truth And I've learned of life And I've learned to feel and Closing your eyes doesn't make it less real Once a man attains true enlightenment He will be viewed as an outsider By those he once considered peers for they cannot comprehend the world he explains. But it is the duty and the responsibility of every enlightened man to bring those people in the dark out to the world he has seen. That was Allegory, Plato's Cave. And uh, when I played that on the air, it got a big response from listeners, a lot of people contacting me to find out more about the song and its creator. So I went directly to the source, the artist known as Dr. Awkward, a.k.a. Josh Watson. Josh, what uh, possessed you to write that song? Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, first off, I'm not really, I'm not a scholar of philosophy by any means, but uh, I was introduced to the concept of the cave uh, in my studies in college, and I always thought to myself that I would love to write a song about it, but every time I approached it, it was a little too too grand a concept. Hip hop is very literal, and it's obviously very metaphorical. So um, I was I was having a hard time kind of conveying 
I wanted to get the message across, but I wanted it to be very uh, digestible, easy to digest, I guess. So uh, I tried and failed several times, and then one day it just, you know, it finally worked out, um, and I, I was able to deliver the message I wanted, and it, I got across a very, very simplistic version of the cave, but I think it got the message across, at least I hope so. Yeah, well, you told, you know, much of the story in really two verses. Right, yeah. I'm curious about the reaction of your audience, uh, you know, people who listen to hip-hop. Have you performed that? Have you gotten any feedback on it? You know, I've never performed it, um, just because it doesn't really fit uh, it doesn't really fit the flow of my show. Usually, it's very high energy my show, and that's that's kind of a, a deeper, kind of slowed down piece of music. But um, I wouldn't say my my listeners are typically hip hop listeners. Even I mean, just because of my subject matter is very uh, intellectual or, or nerdy. I do a lot of video game stuff and comic book stuff, so. I don't have the typical hip hop audience, so they're very receptive to a lot of the things that I do. And overall, that song has gotten a lot of really positive feedback. Oh, cool. Um, and I was thinking that, you know, okay, so your audience really isn't just a typical hip hop audience, but still, there is a little bit of overlap in theme between that story and a lot of hip hop, which is, you know, telling the truth, keeping it real, you know, right, right, <laughs> I mean, reality, yeah. reality is a concern of hip hop, you know, and there's a lot of arguments in hip hop about what is real. So I think it, it, it you really made an interesting connection there. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's what's so powerful about uh, Plato's cave is that it, it really has a lot of, uh, real-world connections today, even. And so, um, I mean, not even just hip-hop, just education about ourselves in general. And so um, I, I think it, it really resonates to people who are willing to give it a chance. You know, I thought it'd be interesting for you to hear Rebecca Goldstein's interpretation of that allegory. She's uh, the philosopher and writer who I interviewed uh, oh, okay. on my show. My interpretation is we're prisoners of ideology, of whatever sort of ideology, all of those assumptions that we've never questioned. Um, I think Socrates or Plato were was most interested in an, in an Athenian ideology, the ethos of, you know, of the extraordinary, just to be an Athenian answered these questions. Um, but any kind of ideology is that lowest level. And the way towards enlightenment is the questioning and the freeing of our own particular ideology and out into reality, which is the same reality for all of us, to the extent that we let reality inform our minds, we're going to understand each other, we're going to have similar minds, we're, we're not going to, perhaps the hope is, persecute and prosecute each other so much. So, uh, so Josh, what do you think of that? I mean... It's it's incredibly enlightening. Um, I like I said, I'm not I'm not really a, a student of philosophy, so to hear an expert's opinion on it is is wonderful. That just makes perfect sense to me. You know, the idea that you're sold, you know, some sort of reality, and it's and it's just not at all. It's not at all the truth. You know, you're you're only seeing one side, and and no matter what you know, no matter what information you're getting, you're getting it with some sort of, I guess, agenda, you know? So I, I think that's a, I think it's a really interesting 
interpretation of the cave, for sure. Um, I'm interested in, in your overall work then, uh, Josh. You said it's intellectual and nerdy. Um, how do you feel about that, <laughs> that subgenre label, nerdcore? <laughs> um, you know, originally I was, uh, I was very, very, I thought it was very, very positive. And then as, as uh, my career went on, it has kind of a negative connotation. A lot of people aren't willing to accept it because nerd for so long had, it, it was always a negative thing to, to call someone a nerd. And now again, nerd culture is really becoming popular culture with, you know, the, you know, Marvel studios making ungodly amounts of money and, you know, everything superheroes or video games. So, um, you know, I, I, I've just been able to come, come to terms with kind of accept the fact that it's just a label, you know, it's just, it doesn't really mean anything. All of the, all of the guys in nerdcore have very different types of music. And, uh, I think my music is wildly different than the next nerdcore guy and, and, and so on. So, I mean, I, I've seen both sides of it and honestly, I'm totally fine with it, uh, either way. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you know, uh, who else was a nerd? Plato. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's that's good company. And tell me about your, your stage name, Dr. Awkward. Dr. Awkward is a palindrome. If you if you shorten it to dr. awkward, it's a palindrome. And I just wanted to come up with like a really cool name that kind of played off of uh, comic books. And so Dr. Octopus is a villain from Spider-Man, and I wanted to be Doc Ock. And so that's... That's how it came to be. Where can people find out more about your, your music? Um, you have a website? I do, I do. It's uh, drawkward.com, drawkward.com. And I'm on Facebook and all that stuff. I've, you got to be everywhere these days. Well, thank you very much. And Thank uh, you. Yeah, and thanks for that song. Uh, I think it hit the spot for a lot of listeners. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely excited that people enjoyed it. It means the world, so thank you so much. Josh Watson, also known as Dr. Awkward. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly saying goodbye until next week. You can visit us online at 7thAvenueProject.com.